In episode 17 of the Executives in Wealth Management podcast, we were joined by Heather Hopkins, Managing Director of Next Wealth. Heather's got a, an interesting story. It's a story that starts in Canada, travels through North America, in Boston, in New York, touches Japan for a period of time, and ultimately ends, or at least is, is presently, in London. A conversation with Heather covers what I would describe as an innate curiosity, which allows Heather to find, I quote, kernels of a conversation and, and see the next thing that might happen and what, what started in politics but is now wealth management. We discussed why Heather wanted to set up Next Wealth and her why for doing that. And then we touch on a couple of insights that Heather can see into the future of, of, of wealth management. I hope you enjoy it. Heather, thanks for coming on to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, good, Tom. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm looking forward to it. So you've got um, a, an interesting story, I believe. Um, global reach, um, touching all corners of the planet. And I think it would be um, interesting for, uh, certainly for me, but definitely for our listeners to understand Heather a little more before we start to understand the, the, the rationale for building next wealth and your observations of the future of, of wealth management. But yeah, I mean, in a few words, can I, can I, um, just try and understand your story, starting in Canada, I believe. Yeah, I was born in Canada, and um, it didn't, didn't actually plan to leave. Um, I got on my first airplane when I was 15 to come to London, um, and it, it just never it never struck me that I could. And it's so different today because, you know, my kids were born in Japan, have three passports, none of which are British passports, and they live here, and um, my daughter speaks three languages. It's just, it's just my background was... But bringing was so different to that. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Canada, worked in Toronto and then Boston and then London and then Tokyo and then back in London. Um, and we bought a house, so we're here to stay for a bit, I think. Okay, so roots firmly settled now. And so, and so how do you go on that, that journey to not getting on a plane until you were 15 to then leading quite an international life for, you know, for a period of time afterwards. How, how did that come about, Heather? So when I was living in Toronto, um, there was the really exciting job opportunities were in the US. It's just a much bigger market. Um, and that, that was for technology, finance, creative, you know, mo most things. Um, and you know, Canada is an amazing place, but it's a tiny country and it's a much smaller economy than its massive neighbor. And so early on in my career, I was quite keen to have lots of opportunities. And um, and so I got my set, sights set on moving to the US and started working for a company that had a head office in Boston. Um, and in the interview process, was very clear with them that my ambition was to move to Boston and asked if that was possible. And it was, and it was great. I worked for them in Canada for four years and then um, in Boston for um, just under four years as well. It was, a, it was a really great experience. 
And what exactly were you doing then, Heather? Um, so I was working for a company called Dalbar. It's a market research firm. I would, I'd been working in politics and got really interested in market research because of the polling work. I think um, you know, for, for people who are curious, comfortable with data and interested in, in behaviour, you know, what drives different behaviours, market research is such a delightful um, industry to work in. And um, so I got interested in polling um, and then I just, I found the job is actually, I mean, this is, it shows how old I am. I was coming back from Toronto, back to Idaho where I was living at the time. And um, someone had left a newspaper on the train seat across from me and I, I was too cheap to buy my own newspaper. So I picked up the Toronto Star and there was a job in the classified section that was listed. And they said, you know, it was in market research, tick. Um, they needed somebody who spoke French, tick. And um, Paradox database experience. And I was like, I think I'm like the only person on the planet who's heard of Paradox. <laughs> um, so, um, so I applied and, and got the job, which was great. Nice, nice. I like um, just how these small events in our lives, like finding a newspaper on a, on a train, right, can lead to, you know, moving to a different country and X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah, it's it's in it was the butterfly effect or whatever, but it's interesting, right? Um, um, curious, that's an interesting word. Um, what do you mean by someone that's curious? Um, so I think I think of myself as curious because I spend a lot of time trying to learn about things that don't have any direct immediate applicability to what I do. Um, so, and I think that just comes from curiosity. And, and you know, so, some people will go down rabbit holes watching all sorts of crazy things on YouTube. That, that probably stems from curiosity. Um, for me, it's university courses. So I'm, you know, I'm taking three courses at the moment. Um, they're really short little courses, um, but I'm always taking little courses. I'm always reading books that have nothing to do with what my day-to-day -day is. Um, but then I'm also really curious about financial advice and wealth management and um, but all that experience of what you learn in those different places is always applicable of course um but yes i i i think i'm a curious person but, but probably most people are well you can never really tell right you don't know but i think i'm pretty curious i think you probably are pretty curious and i don't think most people are <laughs> but that's a different point so how do you consume information then so um you're obviously someone who pays attention to detail and is willing to kind of challenge perspectives and, and, and get diff and hear different points of view. You talk about, you know, consuming information via books and courses and how, just, I'm just curious, you know, how do you consume information? How do you learn? How do you assimilate all this information and make it kind of useful as opposed to just being good at a, you know, pub quiz, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah terrible at pub quiz absolutely awful because <laughs> i have a terrible memory for these for facts um so how do i consume information i um I, I do i read a lot i listen to books i love debating so one of the things that always drives me crazy about my dad is he will just take any opinion and he will just argue it to the nth degree and it is so frustrating but i love it too because um because it gives you that freedom and i think that that one of the thing that's quite hard because people are so exposed with social media that there's just an opportunity to take a position, whether you believe it or not, and argue it, you know, research it, argue it, and, and just challenge challenge somebody else who will take the other side. I think that's a really fun way 
to really understand a topic. And so I do that a lot with my husband and my kids and my friends. And, um, and it's a great way to learn because it helps you to understand a different perspective. Um, so that's, that's one way. And, um, and the other thing that I do is I just try to find little, because there's always these little nuggets that, that are consistent. So in, in my research for, for work, and it, it'll you know bring in experiences elsewhere, but, but I love talking to people and I can learn a lot from, from speaking to people who are knowledgeable. And one of the things I love about the work I do is that, um, is that I, I get to speak to people who know a lot more about things than I do. And, and in talking to them, I often find these threads that, that are connecting and that, that, that brings me to an idea about where things might be going because if it comes up in enough different conversations, um, the sort of kernel that will, won't be the focus of what someone's telling me about, but it'll be this little kernel. I think, oh, that, that's interesting. Well, there's, there's one as an example that came up a few weeks ago on a phone call I was having with somebody who runs a, a, one of the large, works at a big life company, he's head of advice. And mentioned this um, this mafia of actuaries that they're sort of pushing back against the mafia of actuaries, and oh, that's really interesting. And I was talking to somebody else who's talking about how they were pushing back against their legal department about the marketing permissions they had um, for um, being able to communicate with people. And they're like, no, 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 actually, I think you're wrong. Show me where that is. And I was talking to somebody else who runs a fintech, and and they were talking about how one of their clients had pushed back about how a product could be implemented. Um, and, and it's just, you know, how do you push back against those preconceived notions? And so the theme now that I'm, I'm operating under, and it's quite new, but, but I, I think that the sort of undercurrent happening in wealth management is change agents. And now I'm seeing it everywhere because I'm seeing it in politics. I'm seeing it in art. I'm seeing it in music. And it's this idea of like, who are the change agents who have the, the clout to be able to question what they're told, who have the confidence to do it, but also the vision for what they're trying to do so it's important enough to them. So, so that, that's just an example of, you know, a few conversations, you find this kernel that you can thread through them, and then, and then I start to see it everywhere. So of course I've got my own biases because I find these things and, I, and then I seek them out. But that's an example, hopefully that helps to explain how I assimilate information. No, it does, it does. And I like how just your inflection and speed of, you got kind of excited about the whole idea. I can see just seem kind of passionate about it, which is exciting. But so, so let's say you're so, so you're having a conversation now with that head of advice at that uh, life office, as you say, um, and you've got something that you're interested in, kind of understanding actuary mafia. How do you approach that conversation um, when you're specifically looking to get to a certain point? You know, how do you ask probing questions? How do you ask the same question from different points of view if you're not quite getting the answer you know how do you manipulate if that's the probably the wrong word but you know what i'm saying um to take the topic uh i'll take the conversation to the topic that you're looking to understand more i just think it'd be interesting to understand because most people aren't as robust in seeking the kernel perhaps as you seem to be um Maybe they are. I mean, my my job is to is to do this, right? I mean, I'm a market researcher, and I've done it for twenty seven years. I've been in market research, right? So it's yeah. is that right? No, it can't be. 
<laughs> I think it's 27. So I was like, maybe it's 22, now it's 27. So, so, um, so I've been doing it a long time, so that probably helps, right? And, um, but, but the way that I approach it is I create, so there's a topic that I'll want to speak to people about, um, and, and that'll be based on work that we're doing, based on things we think that are important to look at, but also projects we're working on for clients. So that particular conversation is something that we're doing around um, helping people who need help. You know, how, how, do we, how do we help people who need help in the UK? What are the, what are the challenges? What are the underserved and well-served parts of the market? What are the barriers within your company? What are the barriers as an industry? Um, what are some of the solutions that exist out there, either in the UK or other markets? Um, and, and what I do is, is create a discussion guide um, to, to help frame the conversation. So I'll have topics that I want to ask about. I'll do quite a bit of desk research um, on that topic to help me create that discussion guide. I'll run that by people on my team um, who work with me. I'll run it by Peter Mann, who's my chairman, because um, he's got a huge amount of experience in the industry. I'll talk to other people whose opinion I really respect on the topic to make sure, have I got the right topics in here? And then I'll do an interview um, and then amend that, amend the discussion guide based on that. And for some people, I will, I'll cover the whole list of topics and for others, We'll get on. In, I mean, it's the same with you, Tom. I'm sure when you're doing these interviews that you'll have, you know, I, I know because you sent me, you're very well prepared. We had a pre-call. We had a list of topics we're thinking about. And we're already off of that, right? Because, because the conversation goes in different ways. It's like the Thames River, right? Like my son, he, he's obsessed with maps. And he looks at the Thames and he's like, why didn't they make it straighter? I'm like, they didn't. It's, it's not straight. Like, conversations are kind of like rivers, and then there's all these little things that go off of the river. Some of them feed, some of them take off. You know? so, so the discussion, you have to let it go where it goes. But it, you know, that comes with experience and knowledge. But I love interviewing people. And, I, and it's not just people who are experts in our industry. I love interviewing end customers who are, you know, get advice and talk to them about, why? What do you pay? Do you know what you pay? Are you familiar with that? What do you value in that relationship? Um, and just understand their perspectives. Um, so, so getting getting as wide a range as possible, if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense. Um, no, no, it was, it was really good. Okay, so we'll come. We'll kind of meander our way um, to wealth management. But I'm interested to understand how. So we talked about, you've, you've given away all the secrets that we do a little bit of a preamble and have a little bit of a structure there to this, not just winging it all. Um, but we talked a little bit about whether it's breadth of experience, but actually I think more of it is, is you use the word reinvention, which I want to kind of explore. So we've talked, we started in politics in Canada. Um, we, we had children in Japan um, and we're now in London as a founder of a research business. Um, we've had, you know, we've, we've been a parent at some point in between, well, still, but, you know, all of the time um, through that journey. So can we talk about what you mean by reinvention and the experiences that you've had in different places and how you, you know, how that has affected you and, and, and Heather and family and life and everything? Yeah. I mean, your, your, your life just goes on a weird path, right? You can, you can, 
post-rationalize it and make it look like it makes a lot of sense. So my CV makes it, you know, I was introduced to Nevet as a data and research expert, you know, expert with experience in these markets. Sounds like, mm, sounds pretty good, but but the truth of you know the the journey along the way is a bit different, right? So um, so Toronto. I grew up in Ottawa. Um, that's where I was working in politics after university and then went to Toronto because that's where the financial centre is and that's where you know, the opportunities are. I went to Boston, as I mentioned, um, and I didn't love Boston. It's a great city. It's just really small and I, I love big cities. And, um, and so um, I met my, um, my now husband. We were neighbours in Boston. He didn't really like Boston either. Um, but his family lives there, so hopefully they won't listen to this. And... Um, we used to go to New York on the weekends um, whenever we could because we loved it, loved New York. So the two of us were like, mm, so anyway, we, I, my grandfather was born in the UK um, and he works for a UK, he's a journalist who works for a UK publication. So, um, so we had this opportunity to move to London. Fantastic. So we moved to London. Great. But okay, reinvention. I didn't, I didn't know anybody in London. I had no network. I'd had no network in Boston, but I had a job. And, um, and I had no idea what I could do because I'd only really worked for one company. And, and for you know, people earlier on their career journey, it's sometimes really difficult because you work in one company, you figure out how to do something there, but how do you transfer those skills? I had no idea what my transferable skills were. I didn't think I had any. I'd worked up from doing mystery shopping um, in banks to running a division and having P&L responsibility for a product line and, and it was, I had no idea. I, I just didn't know. So I had to completely reinvent myself. I joined a tech startup in quite a junior role. Um, and, um, and that was so freeing because I just could do it again. And um, so it was a, uh, a company that it's called Hitwise. It was a fantastic business. Um, I say was because we sold to Experian, but had to completely reinvent myself from financial services into a tech business, collecting internet usage data. But I had daily what eight and a half million people in the UK were doing every day. And I'd get it in the morning, all anonymized and aggregated to play with. It was such an amazing sandbox to play and it was great. Um, and then um, I got pregnant. My husband was offered this job in Japan. I was like, well, great. So, um, so we went to Japan and um, had to reinvent myself as a mother. And, um, and as an expat, kept working, but very, very little. I mean, really, really, really part-time, 15 hours a week, um, just when, when um, my eldest was sleeping. And, uh, and then when we came back to London, which we never thought we'd come back to, um, went back to you know, tech and then was recruited to join um, or to lead Platform. And so that was a bit of a reinvention as well, because I had to, I had to reinvent myself as somebody who was in financial services and I you know wore a suit and was running a business after having been you know in trainers and shorts and t-shirts for a decade exactly exactly so and I think that um, the thing that's great about that you know you think about the stability of youth and um, and not moving around a lot probably what I had that my kids maybe don't have is is I could just do whatever I wanted and I could muck about in the ponds or in the snow or whatever and um, and felt very rooted and very supported. So I've never been worried about particularly about reinventing myself. And then when I started Next Wealth, that was a it wasn't really a reinvention, um, but it was a big leap and I'm so glad I took it because I love it. So let's talk about that leap then. Um, 
how did you find the confidence to to make that step it's we've talked about um there's a family theme of running your own business um but but more than that you know where does it come from because it is a big step you know we're moving out of a some level of a, a comfort blanket you've got to back your own idea take responsibility for um x y and z now how did you how did you make that step um, so I always wanted to run my own business and I sort of dabbled with silly little things along the way um, and um, and it just seemed like the right time because uh, we'd been in the UK, had a network in, in London and in financial services, so that's really important. Um, we had financial stability, my husband, I'm really lucky, has a good job, we had savings and um, and that's not the case for everybody, right? You have to be willing if you start your own business to say, I'm probably going to forfeit my salary for about a year and um but the risk was pretty minimal to be honest given that i have that sort of security blanket because you can always find another job and i've done that so many times that uh, i was you know you can, you can find something um and um so i i loaned the business five thousand pounds to set up and i um and my husband was really really supportive and um so we agreed that i could go without a salary for a few months to contribute to household expenses. And, um, and and that's not to be diminished because not everybody can do that. You know, there's a lot of pressures when you've got young kids financially. Um, and so so that that's really lucky. Um, and so that, that helped, and then, and then just my network really helped, really supportive. I had um, three clients when I launched the business um, so at the launch event, I was able to reference um, Fidelity, Sandringham, and Bravura, um, and and they're all clients in some guise still um, in five and a half years on. And in fact, the project I did with Fidelity the first year, we just published the latest iteration of that research, um, IFA DNA, and it's and that that's really fortunate, you know, to have people take a chance on me. Um, was really great. So I always say that, you know, what I tell my kids is it's luck and graft. Luck first, because you need to have a lot of that um, in life, right? Um, but you also have to work. Um, but I don't fool myself to think it's all graft. It's definitely not. A lot of it's luck. Yeah, okay. Okay, so so let's talk about why. Um, and in a sense, what I mean by why is... Um, why retail financial services why you know there's lots of different industries lots of different professions obviously with platform there was a, a relevance to what you were doing previously but what was it as some as someone who's not afraid of reinventing themselves you know what was it about retail financial services or wealth management that you particularly thought was the was the right uh, niche for next wealth yeah so so I'm going to take a, a bit of a step back, if that's okay, Tom, to to why why wealth management, because that happened when I moved um, when I took the role at Platform, because before that I'd been working in tech, and and when I was approached, I was really lucky because um, as a guy I'd worked with and um, approached me um, to 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 apply for the role at Platform, and um, and that was a step back into financial advice where I'd worked in the UK and. Um, and in Canada with financial advisors or retail wealth. And and 
So, so why make that shift at that point? Because I originally said, no, you're crazy. I don't know anything about wealth management in the UK. And I don't wear a suit and I don't want to. Um, and, but then I spoke to people who work in wealth management, some of my old contacts um, in the US, um, some of Platform's clients. And I was reminded that, that this industry is trying to do good. Right? I mean, there's always going to be some bad actors on the margins everywhere you are. But fundamentally, this, the wealth management industry is trying to help people make better decisions with their money. And the number of people in this industry who are trying to figure out how do we make better products to help people achieve their goals and objectives? How do we uncover what people really want to achieve in their lives and help them achieve that? It's, it's really meaningful, right, what this industry does. And I, I don't really do anything, you know, I, I try to make life a bit easier for financial advisors so that they can work with more clients. So my impact on that is, is, is you know, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating that to any extent. But what I was doing before was essentially trying to help firms sell more stuff online. That's basically what we did. We worked with airlines, you know, e-commerce websites, whoever, to figure out how do I get more people to my website so I can sell them more stuff, right? And... And actually, I was reminded that even though this industry, you know, on the surface kind of has a bad reputation, the people within it are really motivated by purpose. Um, and if you look at some of the, well, you know, of course, I would look at the data and the research about the impact on well-being um, that people get from, from feeling like their finances are in order. It's massive. It's massive. So, um, so that was what brought me back to wealth management um, and and platform was looking at the industry through the lens of platforms fantastic business had an absolute ball um, but what I really wanted to do was look at it through the lens of financial advice and so that was the the genesis for setting up next wealth was how can we get better data on how financial advisors are making decisions in their business how they're supporting their clients to help the industry support those financial advisors. And I don't mean financial advisors as in the regulated advisor within the business, but those businesses broadly. Yeah. Okay. And before we talk specifically about, I guess, your learnings over the last five and a half years, can we talk about you as a founder of a business that starts with, you know, an idea and a vision and, uh, you know, loaning 5,000 quid, which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you know, you're not going to build a business from that. Um, easily there's a lot of graft to use your word that needs to happen how did you find that first let's say 12 18 months on that journey to what i assume is financial stability and a little bit of security and probably you know a salary <laughs> it was so much fun it was so much fun and it was funny because people said they were like they were like you're glowing it's like and i was like and a friend of mine said that um that you know like, i mean it's silly but like when you first fall in love like you're just so smiley and glowy, right? And I was like that, and 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 sometimes I still am. I'm not sure it's so much anymore, but but that first year was so fun, just trying to figure things out. And people are so supportive. I mean, I've been, I have been really lucky. Um, but you know, I was thinking back to I used to work in the library in my neighborhood because um, the house was really cold in the winter, and um, so I'd work, uh, you know, in the library sometimes writing stuff. Um, and uh, I had a little, you know, Regis Regis desk. Um, that was pretty depressing. So I quickly moved into a WeWork and the network and the WeWork and the sort of the positivity around this office. You can see people behind me still in the same WeWork. Um, so so that, that really helped. 
and of course there's going to be moments that are you know a bit a bit lonely and difficult but um but I don't actually remember those. It might be my bias that I don't tend to focus on the negative. There certainly were moments of stress, and there are. Um, and um, but but the first year was really fun, and the financial stability came quite quickly because it's a service business. It's really different, you know. When I think of founders or entrepreneurs, I don't really consider myself a founder entrepreneur because I think of those as like, you know, building a piece of of tech that's scalable and and whatever. Um, so you know, there's just a service business. So if you're charging for your time then you should be able to recoup your investment quite quickly. Um, and we've been profitable since the first year, um, which is the way it should be in a service business. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so um, I'll ask one question and then we'll move on to the, the uh, I think, the, the core of this, which is, um, I'm saying this from a position of, probably selfishness really in, in that we as a business are going through that kind of inflection point of of scaling and growing a little bit and uh, probably don't have quite the resource that we need at moments to do the 17 different things that um, you know a small business needs to do to get to that next level and sometimes it feels like a lot um, and trying to prioritize where your my my time i guess my time and energy is best place to move the business that you know half a degree forward or, or whatever um how do you manage your time resource with multiple demands you know not uh, not a huge amount of you know money and and resource to kind of throw at a problem etc yeah i'm just curious yeah um it's it's probably one of the most difficult things for any ambitious executive because you could you could, you could just try so much but you can't do it all right and um and you and I probably have quite high standards for ourselves um and and so doing more but doing everything really well it's really difficult um so there's a there's a few things that I do when I set up the business it was actually Clive Waller um said you know in the business plan define why you're doing it and, and what's important to, to you. Um, and it's not about, you know, what is the end game? How many staff, you know, how many clients? It's about what are my personal motivations for setting setting up Next Wealth? Um, and, and I'd had those, but I had written them down and I'm so glad I did. I think it was really good advice he gave me. And, um, and so, you know, one of the things I wanted was to be able to spend a summer, the summer always, in Canada with my family. So I, I just got back from five and a half weeks um, sailing with my brother um, and um, and my son, uh, my eldest had come with us in past years but stayed with my parents this year. But you know, five and a half weeks on a sailboat. And I can do that and it, it works perfectly well in running a business because because August is really quiet, right? And and, and there's nothing that I do that can't wait. And so there are projects that I can't do. We have to turn away as a business, less so now because we have um, we hired somebody in a senior role who can who can do that over the summer. But but that is really important. And so there's things I just can't do or haven't been able to do because of that. That's really important. Um, I block out time in my diary to go rowing. Um, so Monday morning and Friday. Um, at low tide, I go I go rowing, 
and and that's written in my diary and I encourage the team to do stuff like that you know if you need to go to the gym if you've got you know you got to get a hair appointment you want to get a massage like whatever it is you need time out take time out and don't be embarrassed about that just put it in your diary just block it out um so I block out time in my diary for things that are important to me I also have a rule that I won't spend I have a rule of two my PA knows um so I'll have two things either a breakfast and a dinner two dinners two breakfasts whatever but I otherwise I do morning and I'm home for dinner with my kids um but I have two every week that I'll do so this week I went to an awards and I had a breakfast I'm going to miss an awards tonight would love to go help judge the awards but I got to be home with my kids it's the most important thing um so um so I think that that's the most important thing when thinking about how time is spent is what's most important to you um and making sure that you've made time for that and it's not just I think I think women in particular, I don't know if this is fair, but I think women in particular put themselves at the back of the queue. Um and I and I changed that a few years ago and now I have time that's for me, just for me, my rowing. It's sacred. And that's that's selfish just me time. No, I love it. That's really good. We love two. Okay. So let's get into wealth management. So uh I guess we both have an interesting, we're both, I'm not trying to sit as a peer and say that I appreciate the wealth management space um, and the um, iterations in the market like you do, but we both have the vantage point of being able to look at lots of different businesses of shapes and sizes and make observations, right? Um, And we can do that through our clients and our communities and all that sort of stuff in a similar way to, to yourself. So I'll ask a very big and broad question around wealth management and then just let you take the conversation where you will really. Um, you know, what are the what are the key challenges in your mind that the profession needs to work through over the I'll say long term, but I probably mean the next ten years when I say that. Um to move forward and progress or yeah, just what do you think? So I think um, I think there's a, there's a lot of challenges for wealth management, and, and you know if you think about where we focus on financial advice, and um, and you know that, that the reason I focus on financial advice is because I think that's where it's at essentially. I think that's where the really interesting innovation is happening. I think that's where the difference is made for customers. And whether that's offered by a small financial advice practice that's perfectly formed or a large firm that's, you know, and, and, and has, you know, a different approach, or if that's offered by a bank helping people start on their journey to accumulating. I think helping people who need help um, is absolutely where it's at. And that's what really excites me. Um, and within that, I think there's a, there's, there's some challenges, but also some opportunities. So just to start at a really high level, um, the biggest challenge is um, is regulatory disruption, um, and and I think that we're starting to see a bit of a shift um, right now. And I mentioned this idea of change agents, and part of that is what's happening in markets, and part of that is consumer duty. So let me explain what I mean by that. So my hypothesis is that consumer duty is is just a different has a different level of impact on our industry than the RDR, pension freedoms, the two, you know, all these things that have happened over the last um, you know, decade and a bit that have that have fundamentally re- 
you know, rewritten the way our, work, our industry works. Um, consumer duty is fundamentally different, partly because of the way it's framed of just focusing on outcomes and, and putting customers first. And so that forces a different level of discipline in companies thinking about the customer, but also because of the market environment within which it's been introduced. So, um, so first the customer, first thing. It, suddenly, people in organizations are empowered to push back about the shenanigans from people saying, no, you can't market to them. No, you can't do this for this reason. Because they can say, but this is in the best interest of the customer. So how do we make this happen? And I don't think they've had that power to do that before because the rules have always been you can't do this, you can't do that. And the way that those rules are interpreted in organizations lead to all sorts of, of mess, right? But that focus on putting the customer interest first, it means that suddenly the business proposition distribution team who are really closest to the customer, they have something, it's like a trump card to pull out to say, no, no, actually we can do this. Let's find a way to do it. So I think that's really exciting. The other bit about consumer duty that's different is just the market environment within which it's in, been introduced because interest rates are high, um, markets are soft. And so I think that's putting different pressures on businesses, which will result in some unintended consequences of this regulation um, that, that may be positive or negative. And that, that, that is interesting from a market research perspective, but also introduces some challenges for the, for the industry. Um, there's three things we really focus on, business models, investment propositions, and tech. So on business models, um, I think there's new interesting business models emerging to help people who need help. How do you make that work? And um, it's been you know, basically asset-based fees, but that doesn't work for people accumulating wealth. So some interesting changes happening there. Um, there's consolidation happening in advice businesses, um, but I think the type of consolidation is starting to shift because of consumer duty. Um, but there's definitely an appetite, increased appetite among small firms to exit. Um, there's also a really, I'm hearing from a lot of small firms, it's getting harder to get directly authorized from the regulator. And as a sole trader, it's like one or two advice firm, advisor firm. Um, so I think the business models will change. On investment propositions, I think there's really interesting talk around the rise of personalization, tokenization of assets, more sophisticated approaches to thinking about risk profiling and you know investment personality types. But then at the same time, there's this backdrop of narrowing down the solution to a more consistent investment proposition, more consistent investment solution because of what the regulators requiring from consumer duty. So I think there's a real tension there. So that might lead to some challenges, but also interesting um, innovation. And then on the tech stack, I mean, look, what is AI going to do for industry? It's a huge question. We just don't know. Um, but there's really interesting changes happening around, you know, the opportunity to show clients rather than tell them the value advice through cash flow modeling to evidence value, all of that stuff. The tech's still a bit of a mess, but there's lots happening, particularly in big firms. And actually, advisors are happier with their tech than they've been for the last five years, which is great. For the first time, we're seeing they're giving higher scores. They're not happy with it. No one's ever happy with their tech, but they're happier than they've been. Um, but generative AI is, is going to be another massive shift. Um, and we'll see, we'll see where that takes us. Okay. So I think we just covered seven headlines in about four minutes. 
<laughs> so typical in, of me sorry <laughs> so in the context of we don't have another three hours um we've probably got eight minutes six minutes um i'm going to ask you to press into one of those and then we'll 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 make an observation and then we'll go to our our, our cheesy quick fire round so everyone's talking about ai it's topical it's fun it's interesting and there's a, a level of unknown which provokes intrigue um what's your observations of ai and the impact in the immediate term that it may have on i'll say crudely the 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 distribution part of the the wealth management space so whether that be the well the people that sit in front of clients so not necessarily the platforms etc I, I like to show not tell but i'm just curious as to immediate 12 to 18 months do you think there'll be any impact yeah so i mean there's already been impact right so um so advisors doing calls on zoom recorded send it to otter get a transcription right that's that's ai right we're, we're all using ai just different different strands of it um i think um the 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 big the two the two things that could happen um so the cost of producing content goes to zero and so the opportunity to be able to put out content from small firms is enormous and we're seeing a lot more focus on marketing um that hasn't been done because it's harder right um, it's harder to find clients um you have to work a bit harder for it so so advice firms are starting to market their services a little bit more actively um the other i think the the, the sort of the the flip side the the downside is the opportunity to um file claims the cost of that goes to near zero and so um so i think there's a real opportunity for content creation for i won't I think that, you know, you asked about 18 months. I think it's too early to say we're going to be able to have the AI listen to the conversation, structure the notes, put together a suitability letter. I think it's too early for that. But there's opportunities to, to you know, we put our content through the, the AI um, ChatGPT. We use the, the paid for version of ChatGPT um, to find typos, take out, you know, um, take out some of the acronyms, complex language, simplify things. I mean, the, the best advice I can give to anyone is use it every day. Force yourself to use something every day. Yesterday, we were trying to come up with a title for a report. I used ChatGPT, you know, put in some put in some words, had some stuff spit out. We then talked about it as a team and agreed on one, but it was partly inspired by what the AI produced. We use it for agendas. We use it for, um, for transcription, I mentioned, um, but use it every day. And we'll see where it goes. It's way too early to tell how it's going to impact our industry. Way too early. That's really interesting. Um, okay. Okay. You've um, got to start using it, Tom. Can we do a little? I'm, I'm a bit of a dinosaur, really. I try not. I pretend I'm not, but I am a little. So. But, I mean, we didn't know how to use... I mean, I don't use Twitter anymore, but we didn't, I didn't know how to use it. You remember people say like, hi, I'm here. Like, it was just ridiculous the first time, right? You have no idea what to say. But, <laughs> but um, you know, so, so the regulator publishes some consultation paper. Tell me why this is important to me in 10 bullet points. This is the profile of my business, right? You get a research report from Next Wealth. Okay, 
tell me what's important from this research report for me in my role. Describe your role. Describe what you're thinking about. Tell me what in this paper is important to me. For summarizing stuff, it's fantastic. So great. That is interesting. To come back to your point around marketing, um, I, I think you can go into LinkedIn now. And I, I, I think I've got three Twitter accounts because I don't know how to use any of them. And I just keep on making new ones. <laughs> um, but I, I've kind of got there with LinkedIn. Um, don't you think it's really obvious to look at the posts that have been produced by ChatGPT? And I, I say that in the context of you're saying that there's an uh, a, a, a easier route to market to produce decent content, but do you think the overarching quality of the production of stuff is going to come down as a consequence of that? Because there's a lot of very average marketing around, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So there's definitely, um, you know, you can't just take what you're given and publish it. Well, you can, but it's not going to be very good. Um, but look, I was talking to my brother about this in the summer, and he was he read me something. He's like, oh, that was totally written by a robot, wasn't it? I was like, I don't know. I mean, I read a lot of stuff, and a lot of it's pretty poor. So Yeah, um, so, yeah true. <laughs> and, and it's still, like, how quickly does it learn, right? Like, how many times did it have to pay go? before it beat the world champion. Um, so um, so it, it learns quickly. The first, I can't remember the, the numbers, but the first time it wrote the um, LSAT, which is the um, entrance exam for um, for law schools in the US, um, it got, you know, I think it was like 60th percentile. And then like the second time it was 90 something percentile. You know, so the pace at which this thing learns is, is enormous. Um, so, yeah, it's not great now. Watch your back. Making <laughs> me nervous. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, I yeah, I could very easily sit here and talk for the next two hours, I think. But we are we are swiftly moving out of time, and I think someone's got your room in seven minutes. So, um, I'll ask in two minutes, and we'll go two eleven if that's okay, Heather. Um, I'll ask you to make an observation on the wealth management space that you think is interesting over the next, over however long you like? You know, what's what's your view of the future, I guess? So, so I think it's, it's, it's what I was just talking about, that, that I think the consumer duty regulation combined with an appetite to help people who need help is changing the power dynamics within large institutions um, in particular is where I'm seeing it. And I think I think that will change those companies culturally. And I hope it'll change those companies culturally and significantly so that the people who can drive change within those organizations will be empowered to do so because they can say it's in the customer's best interest. Um, but also because there's there's just an imperative in the UK to help people and there's a new customer set that we need to attract so there's a financial imperative so that that to me is the is the the biggest opportunity um, and the most exciting thing i think okay like it so um the quick fire round so the idea heather is to not think too much about these just just respond you know it's spontaneous and impulsive if you like so we'll get straight into it you talked about consuming a lot of books and random ones at times so heather what out what are you currently reading 
So next to my bed is Carol Shields, Unless My Mum Gave It To Me. It's a lovely fiction book. I love fiction at night. And I'm also reading, and this is the one I'd really recommend people pick up, is The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. Um, Rick Rubin was um, co-founder of Def Jam Records, um, worked with the Beastie Boys, Jay-Z, Neil Young, Johnny Cash, all sorts of people. It was really the, the, the one who brought in um, the hip hop um, movement. Um, and um, he's a fascinating character, but he's written this book about the creative act, just about how do you, how does that happen? And, I, and I'm re that's, you know, back to curiosity. I'm really curious about how does the creative act actually happen? Um, what's the mechanism for it? Um, for people doing really interesting creative work, not like what I do. Okay, I'll check it out. Um, who is your idol? None. Nobody should be idolized. Okay. In one word, how would your partner describe you? <laughs> Tall. <laughs> okay. Can't really see that on a podcast, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's your pet hate? Uh, oh, people wearing backpacks on the tube. <laughs> That's such a city thing to say, but yeah. Okay. Um, and okay, so this is the exciting one as a well-traveled person as well. Um, so Signia are paying, so congratulations. Um, you can go on holiday for not five weeks, but you know, two weeks maybe, um, anywhere in the world with your family or without. Um, where do you go? I'd like to go back to Roscoe Bay. It's, um, it's a bay in Desolation Sound, um, north of Vancouver um, in British Columbia. And it's my favorite place in the world. Great hiking, great swimming, fantastic lake, bats, beautiful, incredible. Sounds lovely. Sounds lovely. Heather, this was a, a lot of fun. Thank, Thank you, you, Tom. Where would you go on holiday? Ooh, no one's ever asked me that. Um, where would I go on holiday? Uh, Chamonix, probably. And try and get a Mont Blanc. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much.